Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, all of you wonderful, sexy, empowered listeners. Welcome to Whining About Herstory. I hope you enjoy my sexy NPR voice. <laughs> this is a podcast where two longtime gal pals drink wine and talk about underknown women from history who you may not have heard of. I'm Emily. And I'm Kelly. And we're so excited to have you listening today. I'm trying to speak very gently because I forgot the sock I put on my mic to lessen my plosive. So hopefully that's not a problem. Just don't enunciate your puffs very loudly. Just like silence the puff. It's so hard because I'm such a like energetic speaker. Like I spit when I talk. So I'm glad you're using your own mic then. Yes, this will be a trip. All right, well, we're just going to jump right into it and uh, introduce the wine we're drinking. So uh, I picked the wine this week, and uh, it was kind of a trip because I was trying to find something cheap that semi-fit in with the theme of us having a Herstory podcast and that we hadn't drank before. (laughs) So no Moscatos, no Rieslings, no Chardonnays, and I actually found this one brand called Feisty Bitch. I was this close, but it was like fifteen dollars. So you're uh, like, oh, that's five dollars too much. Yeah, I mean, it's like ten dollars too much because I got this baby. I got some Cabernet Sauvignon, which <laughs> makes me found sound very fancy. Sutter Home brand for like four ninety nine, and it's good. Like it's yeah. it's not bad. No, I've I don't know if I've ever had a Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, just people hand me red wine and I drink yeah. it. I don't ask questions. This, this is not a lot of red wine reminds me of like church wine. This doesn't. Oh my god, church wine. That's a very specific taste. I know, but that's what red most red wines taste to me. This is true. So uh, I'm just going to break back out the sexy NPR voice and read the fancy little description on the back of the label here. At Sutter Home, we've been bringing people together since 1948. Raise a glass to friends and family with our classic Cabernet Sauvignon. Juicy cherry and currant flavors, hints of toasted oak, and and smooth tannins lead to a full, graceful finish. Share good times, Sutter Home. And I want to point out that this wine bottle is like our biggest advocate tonight because one side of the cork said enjoy and the other said cheers. And by God, that's exactly what we're going to do. So, Kelly, am I picking what we're cheersing for today? Okay, well, I'm going to cheers for a few things. One, I'm wearing my Jurassic Park feminist shirt. God creates man. Man creates dinosaurs, dinosaurs eat man, women inherit the earth, and I'm feeling very empowered by it. And two, us getting the audio to work tonight was an extra trip, but we did it because nevertheless, we persisted. So cheers. Mm. Yeah, I'm usually more of like a Moscato Riesling kind of girl. Yeah, I'm a sweet girl too. But uh, yeah, you sweet are. Sweet bitch. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're my sweet bitch. But uh, this is really good, and tonight um, I'm drinking out of the Bed Pugs wine glass. I'm a pug boat. I'm just tugging along over here. I love it. All right. Uh, So I get to go first tonight, which, as always, is very stressful, especially since my gal, 
is from Italy, and there's a lot of Italian names that I am that I knew how to pronounce when I started writing my notes and have forgotten since. It's okay. I have a lot of French names in mind, and I'm going to be at the end where I've had more wine than you. <laughs> I'm just going to be sitting here like, yeah, that fucking French man, a lot de gouge. I'm looking at you, honey. Before I get started, when you talk about women's history, there's a lot of sad and unfortunate stories because that's just how it is. Yep. My story in particular, though, I want to give a content warning to any listeners who are sensitive about sexual assault and violence against women. That is part of what I'm going to talk about with my gal. So if that if you can't handle it, I feel you. That's totally fine. You might want to skip ahead to like the 30 minute mark because yeah, I think we'll be done by that. Yeah, and mine doesn't have need content warnings. So. Like, please stick around to listen to Kelly's because I'm sure hers is wonderful. It and... is. And mine's actually pretty uplifting. Oh, so, thank God. You because... know, I'll bring it home with the happy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I understand trauma is real and I just want to be responsible and let anyone who doesn't want to listen to that know. So if you're not going to listen, we'll uh, catch you on the flip side for Kelly's story. Anyway, let's get started with Artemisia Gentileschi. That's a beautiful name. Isn't it? Like, can we get back to that? Yes. I'll, I don't know if I'm going to have children. I was going to be like, I'll name my child that, but I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to have Get another children. dog. Yeah, I'll get another dog. Get another I'll dog. I'll perpetuate it with dogs. All right. Uh, born in Rome on July 8th in 1593, though her birth certificate says she was born in 1590. I didn't even know they had birth certificates back then. I'm so, so happy you said that because that was my first thought. <laughs> I was like, oh, they have birth certificates. I couldn't help but think back to Sybil Luddington where they couldn't get like accurate documentation of her marriage. And I'm like, but this chick has a birth certificate. <laughs> right? Like how weird is that? From the 1500s. What's happening? Artemisia was the eldest child of child of Tuscan painter Orazio Gentileschi. And I'm say if I'm saying that wrong, I'm so I love sorry. How you like start out the first name kind of chill, and then you get to Je- Gentileschi because I wrote that name more, so I'm more confident. And if I do the little Italian hands, I have more confidence. Yeah, I just did it too. <laughs> so Orazio Gentileschi and Prudenzia di Ottaviano. I think if I do the accent. It, like, masks how bad I am at this. Uh, Artemisia was first introduced to painting by her father, showing more talent than her brothers who painted with her in their father's workshop. She grew up with art, honing her skills with drawing, mixing color, and painting. According to the Princeton University article, Artemisia Gentileschi, the image of the female hero in Italian Baroque, art by Mary Gerard. Quote, by 1612, she was not yet 19 years old. Her father could boast of her extraordinary talents, claiming that in the profession of painting, so many peas, uh, <laughs> which she had practiced for three years, she had no peer. So wow. this girl is growing up with art, and she is 19 and already just peak. Right, and her dad's like... Nah, she's got this. Yeah, no, and her, her, we'll get more into it, but her father's pretty supportive of her art. Good. Which is great, you know, especially back then. So that's great. Uh, Her father's work was heavily influenced by artist Caravaggio. 
which translated into Artemisia's work. However, her style differed from her father's in a few key ways. Her work was more naturalistic, depicting realistic objects and people in realistic settings, while her father's was more idealized, ignoring all of the issues that would be present in a realistic scenario. So I found an example. There's this really famous painting of a girl on a swing, and it's kind of romanticized because she's on the swing and just looking like, you know, the picture of perfection and the painting doesn't really take into account the momentum, the fact that there's a dude right under her who's not afraid of getting kicked in the face. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's more uh, almost dreamlike while hers was very rooted in reality. Okay. Her earliest surviving work was of Susanna and the Elders, painted when she was 17 years old. And I'll show you a picture of this. It is insanely good. Like, it's gorgeous. I'll put it on the blog. Yes. The painting refers to a story from the book of Daniel in the Torah or Old Testament. In the story, a Hebrew wife, Susanna, is bathing in her garden alone. Unbeknownst to her, two pervy elders secretly watch her, as they do. When she starts walking back to her house, they approach her and threaten to claim she was meeting a young man in the garden unless she fucks them, as pervy old men are wont to do. In the Torah, like the Bible. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is from the Book of Daniel. <laughs> like right. you can look it up. This I know. Is, um, Susanna refuses and tells them to fuck off. The men accuse her of promiscuity and she is arrested and sentenced to death because apparently hooking up with dudes in your own fucking garden is well, a punishable married, offense. Wasn't she? Oh, shit. You're right. That's why. I mean, still like. But yeah, like. Bullshit. Um, as she's about to be executed, Daniel, as in the book of Daniel, Daniel, steps in and says that the accusing elder should be questioned. Uh, they're separated and cross-examined. When their testimonies don't match up, it's revealed that they were lying all along and they are instead put to death. So, like, sweet justice. Fuck them. They're creepy right. and horrible. <laughs> so what is so interesting about this painting? While there are tons of paintings depicting Susanna and the elders, most of them depict Susanna as, like, very passive and not terribly effective by the elders' attention because it's always got Susanna and then the two elders, like, groping her or invading her. It's, yeah. it's very, like, gross. Yeah. But the women are always just kind of like, huh. Like, they're looking off, and it's like they don't even know what's going on. In Artemisia's painting, Susanna is clearly disgusted and disturbed and traumatized by the elders touching her. And she's, like, actively, like, trying to push them away. away. She's like, no, this is gross. Get the fuck away from me. Which is cool. And that kind of lends to the realism. which is actually what happened. Yeah, for sure. And they're not – she's not romanticizing abuse by men. Right. Which is great. Artemisia was such a skilled artist at such a young age that some incorrectly speculated she was helped by her father. There is no way this woman who is so young could be doing this by herself. Her daddy must be helping her. Wow. Yeah. Which is bullshit. And he wasn't. I mean, I guess you still get that now. And now it's regardless of gender. But when you see like a young artisan you know i think everyone has that moment of like oh is he getting help from somewhere but it's like people can be born with these amazing talents i will say so 
quick quick aside i found this i found out about this woman from a friend of mine who is an artist and she's been doing this really cool thing for women's history month where every day she posts about a different female artist and artemisia was one of them and she has this like i don't want to call it a pet peeve i'm just gonna power through about calling someone talented versus skilled because talent implies that you inherited it and you didn't work for it and so people will tell her, you're such you're such a talented artist. I wish I could do that. And she's like, you can if you literally draw every single fucking day and don't stop because that's what she does. And she doesn't want to like have her skill be diminished, diminished. Exactly. But yeah, no, I mean, she's growing up with an artist for a father. I'm sure she has some inherent talent to it. Well, but mean, she's worked for this. Exactly. Shit. Like the reason she's so good is, yes, because of her father's influence, not by his hand, but because he was out painting. So her and her brothers were out painting. Exactly. Okay, now we're going to get to what I titled the awful part. Uh, in 1611, Artemisia's father was working with Agostino Tassi to paint the vaults inside the Palazzo Palavinci Rospigli. I don't think that last part was a word. R-O-S-P-I-G-L-I-O-S-E. Ross Pigliosi. There we go. Better. He decided to hire Tassie to tutor Artemisia privately during this time. Uh. Yep. We all know where this is going during this time. Tassie, along with another man, Cosmio Caroli, brutally raped Artemisia. Uh, I think Tassie was the only one who committed the act, but the other dude definitely was, like, helped. There. Yeah. yeah, he he facilitated. The crime was also facilitated by a female tenant in the home and a friend of Artemisia. Oh, Jesus Christ. Tuzia. Tuzia allowed Tassie into the home that day and was present, ignoring Artemisia's cries for help and dis- and denied the event occurred later on when questioned. Artemisia was 18 years old. Wow. Yeah. After the rape, Tassie promised to marry Artemisia. In an attempt to restore her honor and preserve her future, Artemisia remained sexually involved with Tassie. And I I wrote sexually involved, but really he's continuing to rape her because he's lying and manipulating yeah, her Yeah, because for sex. she feels like that's her only option. Exactly. So I'm not saying, like, she's making this choice. She feels like this is the only thing she can do, and yeah. he is lying to her. Tassie never intended to marry her, and when Artemisia's father found out that about this, nine months later, he pressed charges, also claiming that Tassie stole a painting of Judith from their home. So this is going on for nine months after the initial rape. And when it finally comes out, Tassie's not going to fucking marry her and take responsibility. But I mean, why? Yeah, she shouldn't marry him anyway. I'm not saying that's the issue here. But that's when when at this time it becomes an issue. The point of the con- of contention in the trial was whether or not Artemisia was a virgin when she was raped. If it could be proved that she wasn't a virgin, charges couldn't be pressed. How? Why does that matter? That's a great question, Kelly, and I would love to know the answer. But it's so dumb and bullshitty. There is none. All right, like that's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, during the highly pu- publicized seven-month trial. <laughs> It was revealed how incredibly horrible Tassie really was, as if we needed more evidence. 
His long list of misdeeds included planning to murder his wife. Wait, he was married? Yes. Uh, oh. This dude is a fucking piece of work. Okay. He is an absolute so he was, psycho. So he was married, raping someone, planned to kill his wife. Okay, continue. Uh, committing adultery with his sister-in-law. Uh. And I... All the articles said adultery, but I'm like, yeah, but how do we know that he wasn't just raping her, too? Uh, Hiring men to stalk Artemisia, preventing Artemisia from marrying another man who her father had arranged for Artemisia to marry because he wanted her. It was all about power and control um, and had plans to steal a painting from Artemisia's father. I ended on the lighter charge. Just trying to keep this uplifting and palatable. He was also such a blatant liar that the judge had to stop him in the middle of his testimony and tell him to stop lying. Wow. So the judge is literally being like, dude, you're full of shit. Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Now, how do we know that Artemisia was telling the truth? Well, to prove she was being honest about her account of the events, she was subjected to torture by thumbscrews. What are thumb screws? They're basically these things they tie around your thumbs and they pull them either way and they like crush your thumbs. But so they like twist your a, thumbs around. That's going to like make her not be able to paint anymore. I couldn't find any accounts about it doing permanent damage, but it is incredibly uh, painful. Why wasn't he tortured? I mean, I guess they just knew he was lying. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. So while they are torturing her, they are asking her over and over, did he rape you? And she keeps crying over and over, it's true, it's true. Which is... Heartbreaking. What survivors have to deal with to in our current justice system can be absolutely awful, and this just makes me think of that. Yeah. It's just, I mean, this is far worse, but... It's disgusting. It's still disgusting today. During the trial, Tuzia, who had been present and facilitated the crime, basically painted Artemisia as a slut who was asking for it. Where have we heard that before? This was a huge betrayal as Artemisia's mother had died when she was only 12 years old and she had very few female figures in her life she could trust. So, like, the one female friend she has allows her to be raped and then lies about it. Jesus. Super fun. Uh, I did find contradicting stories about Tassie's fate. One said he was convicted and sentenced to be exiled from Rome, but the sentence was never carried out. Another said he was held in prison for eight months after the trial, but was pardoned. Either way, I never found accounts about him being stomped to death by a horse, so clearly justice was not served. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, One month after the trial, in an effort to salvage Artemisia's reputation, she was married off to artist... Pier Tonio Stiatesi, and together they moved to Florence. This is the end of the awful part. Okay. Now we are in Florence. While living in Florence, Artemisia found great success as a painter. She was accepted into the Academy of Arts of Drawing and was friends with some of the most respected artists and figures of her time, including Cristofano Allori. Grand Duchess Christina of Lorraine, the Grand Duchess of Tuscany, and Galileo Galilei, who I feel like everyone should recognize. (laughs) Michelangelo Bunarotti, the younger, so the nephew of Michelangelo, who was honored by having a turtle named after him. Yes, that's (laughs) his great accomplishment. I mean... (laughs) 
it has persisted indefinitely in time. I'm just saying. And no one needs to go up every year and touch it up. It just keeps getting reinvented. <laughs> Shout out Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So Michelangelo the Younger held her in high esteem and even asked her along with other artists to help him paint the ceiling of Casa Bionarodi, which is now a museum. So this oh, is cool. this is the house of the Michelangelo, but Michelangelo the nephew the younger is helping to build and decorate it. Okay. So it's like their family home. Yeah. And you know if a Michelangelo is asking you to help paint a ceiling, it's a big fucking deal. <laughs> uh, each artist was asked to paint an allegory of a virtue associated with the Michelangelo. Artemisia was asked to represent the allegory of inclination. She painted a nude woman with a star over her head holding a compass. In 1684, the figure's nudity embarrassed Michelangelo the Younger's great-nephew, Leonardo di Buonarroto, uh, who commissioned an artist to paint clothes over her. Ugh. Boo. Be comfortable, That happened, dude. like, everywhere, though. Like, that's why, like, statues have their dicks broken off and stuff, because they were like, oh, God, nude. You know what? Love the breasts. Love the dicks. You know, like the there's nothing giant, shameful I about your I body. heard the giant naked man in in the Mayo building used to have a penis, but then they put a fig leaf over it. But then someone told me he never had a penis and it's always been the leaf. So there's mixed mixed signals going on there. That's actually just what his penis looked like. He's a representation <laughs> of a very rare medical condition where your dick looks like a giant leaf. I'm curious how that would work. You know, I'm putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> In 1618, Artemisia gave birth to her daughter Prudentia, who was named. Yeah, she was. No, you're fine. Uh, She was named after Artemisia's mother, who had passed away when she was 12, as I mentioned. We don't know much about Prudentia, but we do know she became a painter trained by her mother. And there's actually, I don't know if I kept it in my notes, but later on, a few travelers make a diary entry about visiting Artemisia and her daughter and they basically say oh we visit Artemisia and her daughter quote who also paints and that, like that's all we know about the daughter all right <laughs> some of her notable works from this period include self-portrait as a lute player circa 1615-17 and Judith slaying holofrins circa 1614-1620 now this one's really cool this depicts the religious lore of a Jewish widow, Judith, beheading holofrenes, or pharins, pharins, holofrenes, I'm making the judgment call, uh, the general of the Assyrian army that laid siege to her city. It's epic. Artemisia's depiction is known for being particularly bloody and realistic because she and another woman are holding this fucker down and just cutting his head off and... Wow. Yeah, it's it's great because he basically she's saving her whole yeah. community because he's just wrecking shit. So she's wrecking him. Yep. And this this is a pattern in her art. She depicts these very strong, capable female figures and also in very realistic scenarios and representations. They're not necessarily idealized or romanticized. They're like, we're here. We're going to get shit done. Yeah. This fucker's head's getting cut off. Which is good, because I mean, I'm sure it stems from what she went through and not being listened to and, you know, having to be tortured to have people believe her. Exactly. No, and I 
I think she was able to express not necessarily vengeance or violence in her paintings, but strength and capability, which is really beautiful. And that hits me right in the old ticker. (laughs) In 2011, 36 letters dating from 1616 to 1620 were discovered that gave further insight into Artemisia's very interesting life. She maintained a passionate affair with Florentine nobleman, Francesco Maria Maringhi. I almost thought that said margarita, and I got really excited, and then I got real disappointed. Uh, In a surprising twist, her husband was aware of the affair and even corresponded with Francesco on the back of Artemisia's love letters to him. So she's, That's interesting. she's writing love letters. He's like, hey, honey, when you're done, let me grab that. He flips it over and writes his own fucking letter to the dude. I mean, he must have been okay with it. This is likely because Francesco provided them with some financial support. So he's, she's like having an affair and kind of doing her thing. And he's like, well, I mean, I guess you're paying for the pleasure. So I'm not gonna like question it. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and. Again, this was kind of a marriage of convenience to protect the woman. So who knows how much love or whatever was in the relationship. So maybe he was just like, yeah, you do you, I'll do me. This is fine. I mean, speaking of which, unfortunately, growing rumors of the affair along with financial and legal problems led Artemisia to move back to Rome in 1621 without her husband. So, yeah. Yeah, marrying someone to run away from your problems and try to reclaim your honor, which is, I mean, there is no dishonor in being the survivor of a crime. Just, it doesn't work out. Those marriages usually don't last, but I I getcha. I getcha, girl. All right, now we are in Rome. Here, Artemisia continued pursuing art. As I said before, she was heavily influenced by painter Caravaggio, who had been dead for a decade by now, but still had a lot of influence. And formed a professional relationship with another Caravagisti, Caravagisti, basically, a, you know, another fanboy. Yep. Simon Vogt. And they supported each other in their art and highly influenced each other. So they're basically creating art of a similar style together. Yeah, it's and a lear- mutual thing. Yeah, which I think is very beautiful. And it makes me think of, like, the art community in town. Everyone's very supportive of each yep. other and, like, lending tips and tricks and providing each other opportunities to be seen right and i feel like that's the way it should be versus one artist being like oh you're copying me and it's like no work work together exactly when we when we help each other we all bloom all right artemisia skills didn't go unnoticed she was honored by the academy of desiosi with a portrait that carried the inscription to paint a wonder is more easily envied than imitated so basically, it's a lot easier to be like, that art's amazing. I wish I can do that than put in the work and actually do it, which I think is a beautiful quote. It is. I like that one. Unfortunately, despite her skill, reputation, and relationships with other artists, Artemisia found little financial success in Rome. During this time, her works became more relaxed and less defiant. For example, she painted a second depiction of Susanna and the Elders in 1622, and it's much more passive and relaxed than her original. Mm. Susanna's definitely kind of falling into the the tone of the other paintings I was talking about, where she's just like, oh, you're groping and threatening me? I didn't even notice. 
Her paintings became limited to portraits and biblical heroines as opposed to more lucrative altarpiece commissions. So she's not making a lot of money from her art, which is a bummer. There isn't a lot of documentation of her work and life at this time, but at some point between 1627 and 1630, she moved to Venice, likely seeking opportunities for more expensive commissions. Okay. Some of her notable works from this period include The Sleeping Venus, which is housed in the Virginia, I almost said vagina, (sighs) Museum of Fine Arts. (laughs) That's a Freudian slip if I ever saw one. And Esther and Asurus, A-H-A-S-U-E-R-U-S. Someone's listening to this and like pronouncing it like it's no big deal and going, Emily, you dumb bitch. I hear you, uh, which is housed in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So her art is stuck around and it's highly honored today. Yeah. It's in some really prominent places like, you know, in vagina. <laughs> the vagina fine art museum. I mean, the vagina fine art museum. Can we make that happen? Right. I'd Only women artists. <laughs> in 1630, Artemisia moved to Naples, which was known as being a haven for artists, art lovers, and more lucrative art opportunities. So this is like... Her Valhalla of art. Okay. Uh, There's speculation that she may have actually been invited to Naples by the Duke of Alcala, who owned three of her paintings. So, I mean, while she's working, if she's not making a lot of money, she's definitely gaining a reputation for being a skilled artist. She's got fans. She's like, they made in powerful places, too. Exactly. Well, they're the only ones that can fucking afford art. So. That is uh, very true. You know what would really tie this, like, straw hut together? A giant portrait of Artemisia as a loot player. That's really just going to make this home. (laughs) That that is what will make it a home. While working with other artists in Naples, she formed relationships with many renowned artists, including Massimo Stanzioni. Her art even influenced his use of colors. Wow. So she's influencing other prominent male artists. And what I love is that she seems to be on an even footing with a lot of these people. Right. Like they respect her. She probably, I mean, I would assume she respects them. Like she seems like someone who would. Like, yeah. There's a lot of mutual back and forth, it seems. And I love that. I love that sense of community and that sense of support. Uh, She also had the opportunity to work on cathedral paintings for the first time. She worked on one dedicated to St. Januarius. I wonder if there's anything prominent named after him. (laughs) Like the worst month in the world. There she painted the birth of St. John the Baptist, which is now housed at the Prado in Madrid. Wow. This was part of a collaborative series of six paintings which depicted John the Baptist's life with contributions from Stanzioni and Paolo Finoglia. Finoglia. Yeah, I gotta do my Italian hands. <laughs> Is that offensive? God, I hope it's not. I'm sorry. In this work, Artemisia really shows off her ability to adapt to painting outside of her comfort zone, as this is much different than her paintings of heroic women. Okay. So she she has her thing, but her skills are so... She's so capable, she can really do anything. Right. She's broadening her scope because she's capable of doing it. Exactly. In 1638, Artemisia reunited with her father, Orazio, in London, where he had become a court painter for Charles I. She had actually been invited by King Charles himself, who was a great admirer of her work and even owned one of her best-known self-portraits called 
self-portrait as an allegory of painting, which is probably the picture we will use to represent her on the drive. It's okay. one of the most well-known depictions of her. And it's basically just her painting. She's in her element, and it's beautiful. You go, girl. Together, Artemisia and Orazio worked to paint a, a ceiling allegory of triumph and peace and the arts in the Queen's house built for Queen Henrietta Maria. Wow. Big fucking deal. Right? That's huge. Sadly, Orazio suddenly died in 1639. Artemisia continued working in England until 1642. At the beginning of the English Civil War, she's like, I'm going to peace out of here. This isn't really my deal. There's not a lot of documentation on her movements after this, but she did eventually return to Naples, which is, I feel like that's where she found her home. That's where she found her people. That makes sense. In her later years, Artemisia's style became softer and more feminine. This can be attributed to changing artistic taste, but it's possible that Artemisia became more comfortable with her identity as a woman painter. You know, she was uh, embracing her femininity more because I imagine she was highly influenced by the men in her life because her mother died when she was very young. The only woman she was close to betrayed her in a really horrible way. And she did have brothers. She had brothers. She grew up around men. And most of the male painters, she's, you know, they've been male. Exactly. She's she's a woman working in a very male-dominated world, not just from her family, but just in the industry. Yeah. And she's still getting shit done, which, polite golf claps, honey. While she was taking commissions up until 1654, she became more dependent upon her assistant, obviously, as she's getting older. Mm-hmm. Some think she may have been a victim of the plague, which swept through Naples in 1656, nearly wiping out an entire generation of Neapolitan artists. She was buried in the Church of St. John of Florentines in Naples. Unfortunately, the church and her grave were destroyed during World War II. Oh. Yeah. A little bit more about her art. I touched on some of her paintings, but I want to get into it more, and I'm not an art history person i'm not an artist myself so i'm definitely not able to appreciate everything about her art as much as other people would but we're gonna try when it comes to her artistic legacy and influence she doesn't get enough credit of her approximate 57 works 49 of them feature women from either as either the central figure or as equal to men The women represented in her paintings are depicted as strong, confident, rebellious, and lacking stereotypical feminine traits such as passiveness, weakness, and sensitivity. Aww. Yeah, which those are – being sensitive is not a bad thing, but she's depicting women as strong, capable heroes of their own stories. Yeah. Uh, For example, Susanna is actually pushing away her abusers. Judith is – Taking control of a terrible situation and and beheading some douchebag. Yes. The representation of strong women can be attributed to the fact that she grew up primarily around men and didn't adopt some of the feminine socialization as others, but also her status as a survivor. She depicted the strength she knew women to possess. A lot of the stories she painted are of women who took matters into their own hands against those who would victimize them. Yeah. And I I love that. Um unfortunately, her artistic legacy has often been undermined by her rape and the very public trial that followed. She was often depicted as loose or immoral and in the lens of a rape victim who also happened to be an artist. Right. However, 
I think it's important to understand that Artemisia was a skilled artist and a well-rounded human being who was more than one terrible thing that happened to her. Right. There's been renewed interest in her arts and contributions as an artist, but she's still highly overlooked. Yeah. But something that really drew me to her was that this terrible thing that happened to her was overshadowing all of these incredible accomplishments. Like, she knew the Michelangelos. She painted Michelangelo's ceiling. She knew Galileo Galilei. She painted in the court of King Charles. Right. But she's For the queen. For the queen! But she's known for this one horrible thing that happened to her. And she actually, she took that and the strength she found in that and channeled it into her art and was such an amazing woman and artist. And I want her to be more than this one bad thing that happened to her. Because, like, as a survivor, I am more than one bad thing that happened to me, too. As am I. And... If you're listening, if you're a survivor, you are so much more than one bad thing that happened to you. And you are incredible and we love you. Yes. All the love. All the love. So that's Artemisia Gentileschi (sighs) with my Italian hands and my over-exaggerations. I'm going to readjust quick because my story is like five pages long. (laughs) Okay. I was, I'm kind of glad to hear that because I got to like four pages. There is so much shit I left out because I'm like... I need to stop. Oh, like, yeah. at some point, I just need to there, stop. There are, in the la- the later life of my person, I'm like, okay, we're just cliff noting this. Love it. All right, you ready? I am ready to strap in and strap on. All right. So today I am doing Josephine Baker. Have you ever heard of her? I haven't. Okay. I saw the name on the drive and resisted the urge to Did Google you see the her. pictures? I didn't. Oh, there's some pretty nice ones. I was there. very well behaved. Good. I didn't peek. <laughs> All right. So she was actually born Frida Josephine McDonald in St. Louis, Missouri on June 3rd, 1906. She was born to a washerwoman named Carrie McDonald and a vaudeville drummer named Eddie Carson. They played shows together. That's a fun little pairing, a washwoman and a vaudeville, vaudeville star. Drummer. Yeah. Love it. Um, there is some speculation about whether or not Eddie was actually her father. Um, in fact, one of Josephine's foster children wrote in a bio- her biography, published in 1993, after he did an extensive amount of research on everything about her life, and he stated the following concerning her parentage. So, quote, The records of the city of St. Louis tell an almost unbelievable story they show that carrie mcdonald was admitted to an exclusively white female hospital she's black i feel like i need to note that (laughs) yeah no it is important for this story um she was diagnosed as pregnant she was discharged on june 17th her baby frida j mcdonald having been born two weeks earlier why did she spend six weeks in the hospital especially especially for a black woman who would customarily have had her baby at home with a midwife Obviously, there have been com- there must have been complications with the pregnancy, but Carrie's chart reveals little to no details. The father was identified on the birth certificate simply as E.W. or E.D.W. I think Josephine's father was white. So did Josephine. So did her family. People in St. Louis say that Carrie had worked for a German family around the time that she became pregnant, and that he's the one that must have must have gotten her into the hospital and paid to keep her there all those weeks. Also, her baby's birth was registered by the head of the hospital at that time, when most black births were not. 
Wow. I have unraveled many mysteries associated with Josephine Baker, but the most painful mystery of her life, the mystery of her father's identity, I could not solve. The secret died with Carrie, who refused to talk about it. She let people think Eddie Carson was the father, and Carson played along, but Josephine knew better. So that was written by Josephine's foster child. That kind of reminds me, going back to episode one, Alam de Gouge, where it was, like, very sketchy. I mean, obviously, there's so much more documentation on this. Right. And my first thought is, I hope it was consensual. Right. Yeah, especially back uh, then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, shout out to dads Mm -hmm. who stick around because shout out to eddie carson who whether or not it was his child like was like yeah sure this is my child whatever exactly it anyone can be a sperm donor it takes a real person to be a father and so good for him after the birth carrie and eddie had a song and dance act they played wherever they could get work um and when josephine was about a year old they began to carry her on stage occasionally during their finale oh cute yeah she was further exposed to show business at an early age because she grew up in a neighborhood that was home to many vaudeville theaters such as jazzland and comet um they were vaudeville theaters that were also movie theaters they kind of did both back then okay like they pull down the screen or pull it yeah. up to reveal the stage yep. Vaudeville must have been such a trip because you hear about all these incredible vaudeville stars. And I'm like, I I would have loved to see what one of those shows was like. Right. And you see it a little bit like in like singing, singing in the rain where they have like their little skit. Well, a lot of vaudeville stars took their kind of sachet into the movies. Right. And Josephine does that too later in life. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so We're not going to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> she lived her early life. In the Mill Creek Valley neighborhood of St. Louis, which was a racially mixed, low-income neighborhood near Union Station. And this is the early 1900s, you said? Um, She was born in 1906, so yeah. Okay, so like, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yep. So this neighborhood mainly consisted of rooming houses, brothels, and apartments with no indoor plumbing. Super fun. Josephine was always poorly dressed and hungry as a child and developed street smarts playing in railroad yards at Union Station. She had little formal education and attended Lincoln Elementary School only through the fifth grade. Wow. Yep. So she had it rough. Yep. Um, At some point, Eddie left. Oh, Eddie. Carrie did remarry a kind, this was a quote from one of my sources, a kind but perpetually unemployed man named Arthur Martin. Oh, well, I mean, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, he can't hold down a job or contribute to the house, but like, he's all right. He makes me laugh. Yeah. Carrie and Arthur had two more children, a son, actually three more children, a son and two more daughters. Damn. Um, And Carrie started uh, taking in laundry again, because obviously Eddie left, so there was no more vaudeville show for her. Um, So she took in laundry to wash to make ends meet again. Um, At eight years old, Josephine began working as a live-in domestic for white families. At 18, you said? Eight. Oh, sh- Oh, wow. That was a gross mishearing on my part. Eight <laughs> um, years old and she's working as a servant for yep, white families? Cleaning houses and babysitting for wealthy white families who reminded her, be sure not to kiss the baby. Uh, be- why? Because she'd like... No, that was just a thing. Like, they, the black people weren't supposed to, like, kiss white babies. I don't oh, know. Oh, because they're going to, like, taint yeah. them? Yeah. So it's... In quotes, it says, be sure not to kiss the baby. Don't you love old-fashioned racism? <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. One woman actually abused Josephine, burning her hands when the young girl put too much soap in the laundry. 
There's a spe- special place in hell for her. Yep. Where she just is drowning in soap. Yep. <laughs> At 13 years old, she left home and lived as a street child in the slums of St. Louis, sleeping in cardboard shelters, scavenging for food and garbage can, making a living with street corner dancing. Um, and then she got a job waitressing at a place called the Old Chauffeur's Club. Ooh, that sounds um, super fancy, but I bet it's not. I mean, it sounded at least not like a strip club. Like it was a legit like waitressing job. I'm I'm unpacking the name and I realize I it's a fancy sounding club for the working class. Yeah. This is where the fancy people's drivers so, hang out. Remember, she's 13 at this time. Jesus. Um, she meets Willie Wells at the Chauffeur's Club and marries him. However, the marriage lasted less than a year. Thank God. Um, and then she, following her divorce from uh, Willie, she found work with a street performance group called the Jones Family Band. So this girl, by 13 years old, has had more work experience than I probably have had in my life. And she's also been married and divorced. Yeah. And she's 13. <laughs> yeah. What the actual fuck? This is awful. I thought you said yours was upbeat. Oh, it is. Okay. Um, while it was unusual on. for women during her era, Josephine never depended on a man for financial support. Therefore, yeah. she never hesitated to leave a re- when a relationship soured. And she was married and divorced three more times over her life. But we'll we'll get to those. Good for her. Because it is hard to leave a crappy relationship. Right. And I love that she's like, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. You're just fun to have around. Exactly. So she ch- toured the United States with the Jones Family Band and with another group called the Dixie Steppers. Um, in 1919, she performed very com- various comical skits, a lot of which, unfortunately, was blackface comedy because that was the time- type of times it was. Yeah. Um, eventually, the two troops split from each other, and she tried to advance as a chorus girl for the Dixie Steppers in Cicel and Blake's production of a show called Shuffle Along. Um, she was rejected because she was too skinny and too dark. That's awful. Yeah. You know, we still see that today. There's like this discrimination amongst people of color. It's like, well, you're the right shade of person of color, but you, you're way too dark. And that's fucking awful. It's terrible. Um, however, she was undeterred and she worked as a dresser for the show and learned all the chorus line routines. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm taking a step back because I I got stuck. She most likely had a white father, correct? Yep. And she's still she was too, too skinny dark? and too dark. That's what they said. Okay. I don't. I, I mean, don't know. I don't know how that fucking makes sense. <laughs> yes, I know. Okay, I'm so sorry. She, Please she learned, continue. <laughs> she learned all the chorus line routines, but she was a dresser for the show. However. At one point, a dancer left, and Josephine became the obvious replacement. Yes. On stage, she rolled her eyes and purposely acted clumsy, as if she were unable to remember the dance, until the encore, at which point she would perform it not only correctly, but with additional complexity. A term of this time described that part as the pony. Like, I don't know why. And she was billed at the time as the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. So it it was a bit to be like, oh, wow, this chick can't do yeah, shit. And then suddenly, oh, yeah. just kidding. She's amazing. And it became like a huge thing and the audiences absolutely loved it. I totally get that. That yeah. makes perfect sense like, to so me. So she became a, a pretty big hit. Um, however, during these years, because she's still a teen at this time, um, she struggled to have a healthy relationship with her mother who did not like Josephine being, being an entertainer. Um, and was scolding her to take care of her second husband, who she married in 1921 at the age of 15, 
So her mom's like, you know, you're married. You should take care of your husband. Why are you out there doing comedy? 15. She's had a ton of jobs. She has a performance career. And she's, she's on been, her second She's second on her husband. second marriage. Damn. Also in 1921. So she married Willie Baker. And then later in 1921, she headed to New York to experience the Harlem Renaissance. Awesome. Performing at the Plantation Club and in the chorus lines of groundbreaking and hugely successful Broadway reviews. Shuffle Along, which we touched on. Um, and then the, another show she did was The Chocolate Dandies. Um, when, she, when she went to New York, which was the same year she married Willie Baker, she left him, but they didn't um, get separated for a few years after that. But she kept his last name throughout her career because she was so well known by that name that she couldn't just like right. be like, I'm changing my name now. I actually, I have a friend and her, her parents got divorced and I think... I think her mother kept her married last name yeah, some people because do. she had just gotten a bunch of business cards printed. And she's like, I'm not going to reprint all those fucking things. Do you know how expensive business right. cards well, are? Well, I know people that are like doctors and stuff that'll get married like after they become a doctor and they're like, no, I'm not changing my name. Yeah. No. A, a name is very personal. We've talked about that on the show before, how we refer to the women we cover by the first name because it seems more intimate. Join our Femi family. Yes. <laughs> we love you. We have cookies and wine. Um, so though her... Wait, did you say we have cookies? I mean, we could have cookies. I don't want a cookie. They don't know we don't have cookies. I'm we'll sorry. go out and buy cookies. I Guys, follow us. don't think we should drink right now or go driving right now. Well, someone else can drive us. We'll Uber <laughs> to get cookies. <laughs> Uber to get cookies. Um, so though her career began with blackface comedy at local clubs, this was which was the entertainment her mother, you know, was not happy with her doing. I mean, totally valid. Um, these performances eventually did land Baker an opportunity to tour in Paris, which would become the place she would she would call home. Holy shit, that's awesome. So yeah, she was like on the chorus line and stuff, and then she was able to go to Paris. She just launched herself to Paris. Yep. It says, Baker sailed to Paris for a new venture and opened in La Revue Negra on October 2nd, 1925, at the age of 19. Oh my god, this girl is living her life. At the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées. I'm sorry, it's French. That's okay. I'm There's having, a lot more French. I'm having episode one flashbacks, and I'm like, I'm right here with you, honey. <laughs> Kelly, I got you. <laughs> right. Um, in a 1974 interview with The Guardian, Josephine explained that her... So this is a jump to the future, but it's a quote from Josephine herself. She explained that she didn't obtain her first... She, she did obtain, sorry, her first big break in the bustling city. She says, and I quote... No, I didn't get my first break on Broadway. I was only a chorus girl in Shuffle Along and Chocolate Dandies. I became famous first in France in the 20s. I just couldn't stand America, and I was one of the first colored Americans to move to Paris. Oh, yes, Bricko was there as well. Me and her were, were the only two, and we had a marvelous time. Of course, everyone knew who Bricky was, and they got to know Miss Baker as well. I love End that. Quote. <laughs> Can I also say that I... Okay, I'm, I'm sure that... Uh, chocolate dandies has uh that some racist so overtones well even that was blackface comedy back exactly then. but like it makes me think of candy like those those boxes of chocolates yeah and i'm having a really bad connection with that and i'm really hungry <laughs> Wait, you're talking about cookies oh my god cookies <laughs> and wine and chocolates 
This is what I need. (laughs) In Paris, she became an instant success for her erotic dancing. She brought a lot of, um, like, typically black dances to Paris. Mm -hmm. And they absolutely loved her for it. I love that. In America, they probably didn't appreciate no. that. In fact, they probably comes looked down back on later. it. And in Paris, they're like, this is revolutionary and amazing. Like, they're not, they're separated enough from their racist bullshit yep. to appreciate yep. it. So she was a success for that dancing. And then because she also had a penchant for appearing practically nude on stage. Get it, girl. Um, she went on a successful tour of Europe. However, she broke her contract and returned to France. To star at the Foyles Berger and this show, which I apparently didn't put in there. The show called just The Show. Yep, I can't think of it. Uh, set the standard for her future acts. She danced topless, although in the pictures it looks like she's wearing like a onesie of her skin color, but the source said topless. Okay. Wearing a skirt made of bananas fun yeah it's it's really cute i'll put some of those pictures on the blog the show was a huge success and she instantly became one of the most popular and highest paid performers in europe writers and artists such as pablo picasso ernest hemingway and ee cummings were fans at this point she was also nicknamed the black venus and the black pearl that's awesome yeah right um, in later shows, she off- she was often accompanied on stage by her pet cheetah, Chiquita. Chiquita Bananas. Oh my god, what? Yeah. She had um, a cheetah named Chiquita? Chiquita, yeah. Cheetah, um, Chiquita, Cheetah, Chiquita. Who was adorned with a diamond collar. The Chiquita frequently escaped into the orchestra pit <gasps> where it terrorized the musicians, adding another element of excitement to her shows. Did anyone get eaten by Chiquita the cheetah? Uh, they didn't say. So, yeah. I'm hoping not. Right? Oh, my God. I love that she's very uh, theatrical. Yeah, she like, definitely was. super over the top, and that seems like you kind of have to be that person to be in show yeah. business. She was adorable, though. Oh, my God. I want to um, see the pictures of her with her Chiquita banana Yeah, I do have a picture. And Chiquita I, the cheetah. I don't have her in the banana skirt with the, with the cheetah, but I have a picture of her and the cheetah. Oh, my God. So... Josephine rivaled Gloria Swanson and Mary Pickford as the most photographed woman in the world. And by 1927, she earned more than any entertainer in Europe. I mean, you gotta be making that money to feed that fucking cheetah. Right. Antelopes aren't cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Josephine was also the first African-American woman to star in a major motion picture. In 1927, she appeared in the silent film Siren of the Tropics, directed by Mario Nalpas and Henry Etivant. Um, she also starred in two movies in the early 1930s, Zuzu and Princess Tam Tam. I thought you were going to say Princess Tampon. No. And then I was very disappointed when you finished the second syllable. Yeah. Sorry. I, um, I mean, I guess they weren't that progressive <laughs> back then. After a while, Josephine was the most successful American entertainer working in France. And Ernest Hemingway... Big name there. Oh, yeah. Called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. The author spent hours talking with her in Paris bars, and Picasso drew paintings depicting her alluring beauty. Uh, Jean Cocteau, who I don't know who that is. Ooh, you made it, said that very nicely. Thank you. Cocteau. Uh, became friendly with her and helped vault her into international stardom. Creatives support creatives. Right. And I love that. So at this time... 
She was also branching out into singing, and she scored her most successful song, Jadou Amours, in 1931. In 1936, she made a return to the United States to star in Zegfeld Foils, which proved absolutely disastrous. Oh, no. Despite the fact that she was a major celebrity in Europe, American audiences rejected the idea of a black woman and so much sophisticate with so much sophistication and power. Newspaper reviews in- were equally as cruel. The New York Times actually called her a Negro wench. We are so fucking dumb, and I am right? very upset about it. Um, and see, and that's what I was saying. They were, like, separated enough from it oh, yeah. where they could really appreciate everything she was doing. Yeah, and she but was over back here, here we're just it's assholes. like, no, no, because you're black. Fuck yep. you. And that's fucking awful, and I'm very upset. Yes. I'm going to angry drink now. So she returned to Europe afterward, and she was obviously heartbroken. Well, she's rejected by her home country. Yep. At this point... She uh, married French industrious Jean Leon in 1937 and renounced her U.S. citizenship and became a French national. I mean, fuck, I would. Um, at this point is when she also, I mean, no one knew her by her first name, which was Frida. Um, but at this point, she when she became a French national, she fully just dropped that and became just Josephine, Josephine Baker. Baker. Um, Say her name. Right. She later raised her children in France and said, I quote, I have two loves, my country and Paris, end quote. Um, she also sang a song called Jadou Amours Mon Pace et Paris. That's my I French heard, for today. I heard um, something about loving Paris. Yeah, that's okay. what I'm assuming. In 1939, when Germany and France were at war, so we're coming in, what is that, World War II? What year are we? 39. Yes. <laughs> um, she was appointed as an honorable correspondent by the French military organization, Dioxime Bureau, because she would go on to help France in several ways. Um, she would perform for she performed for the troops um, in North Africa and later in Spain, and she would write notes and gather military intelligence because she worked for the resistance. Oh shit! So she would like write it in disappearing ink on the back of her music. <gasps> and then bring these notes back. Viva la resistance. Viva la resistance. That's incredible. Um, so, so she's not just because you started talking, and I'm like, oh, so like a USO dancer, or you know, like when celebrities I mean, go yes, overseas but to it was kind of troops. different because you know there was also like the French Revolution kind of going on at the same time as World War Two. Or what? Because German Germany occupied France during World right. War Two. So she would go and play for the German troops, learn their movements, and go back to the French resistance. Yeah, but you said the French Revolution. I know, Revolution. I, didn't, I didn't mean okay. the French Revolution. I meant, well, the French Revolution against Germany. Okay, okay, I see. I was like, we're her. Revolt is the word I was think I meant. Was she in a lump like besties yeah. and I just didn't read about it? <laughs> Sisters um, from other misters. Right. So during this time, she was also named a sub-lieutenant in the Women's Auxil- Auxiliary Air Force. She was later awarded the Medal of Resistance with Rosette and named a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor by the French government for her hard work and dedication to the cause. That's incredible. I love how she was able to kind of channel her creative talents and her status as a celebrity into actually like helping fight the Nazis in right? World War II. It was pretty sweet. So in 1947, she married Joe jo Boulian, a French composer. So around husband number four okay nothing wrong with that and it was during this time that she began adopting children forming a family that she often referred to as the rainbow tribe she wanted to prove that children of different ethnicities and religions could still be brothers 
oh my god my little heart is breaking that's so sweet um she often took the children with her cross country and when they were at les melandres which was her home in france um tours were arranged so visitors could walk the grounds and see how natural and happy the rainbow tribe was Oh my god! The that's last part's incredible. a little weird, but it's, it, I it's, mean, putting it's your cool. children on display is questionable. She adopted twelve, twelve children. Okay, so she she's going after the crown, trying to yeah. take it from Sybil Luddington. Yep. We're we're All on right. there. <laughs> um, she's got her own little army of cohabitating people, right? Also, during this time, Josephine uh, visited the United States throughout the fifties and sixties, and she returned there with renewed vigor to fight racism. Um, I mean, yeah, the 50s and 60s are a pretty volatile time in America. Right. When New York's popular stork club refused her service, she engaged in a head-on media battle with pro-segregation columnist Walter Winchell. Fuck him. And then the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, so the NAACP, named May 20th Josephine Baker Day in honor of her efforts. What did you say, May 17th? 20th. May 20th? You were close. Hey, it's coming up. Everyone, uh, celebrate Josephine Baker, May 20th. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Do it, do it, do it. Sorry, that was really loud. <laughs> Kelly is upgrading. She's not reading her notes off of her phone tonight. She's uh, reading off her tablet. Yeah. Now I have to find where I was again because it closed on me. Oh, no. Yeah. I think I'm on page four. Yep, I'm on page four. <laughs> All right. So in 1968, she was offered the unofficial leadership in the movement in the United States by Coretta Scott King following Martin Luther King's Jr.'s assassination. Um, However, after thinking it over, Josephine declined the offer out of concern for the welfare of her children. She she was afraid there would be some kind of violent backlash. I mean, completely valid concern considering Martin Luther King Jr. had just been shot. Right. Um, She did continue to travel in the United States, though, and during her visits, she developed a close friend um, with American artist Robert Brady, now divorced from her fourth husband, She was looking for companionship, but on a more platonic level. Brady felt the same, and on a trip to Acapulco, Mexico in September 1973, they went to an empty church and exchanged marriage vows. Though no clergy was present and they were never legally joined, it was an important personal bond that she and Brady maintained the rest of her life. That's very sweet, because she's been married, I mean, unofficially this last time, but is this five? That would be five, yep. This is her fifth committed partner, she started when she was 13. 13. I mean, it sounds like this was almost, it didn't need to be legal. It didn't need to be yep. on paper. It was more of a commitment versus just yep. for legal sake. Right. And that's very sweet. Good for her. Um, She did tell very few people about her pseudo marriage, fearing, fearing the press would ridicule it. So I'm I mean, assuming he was white. Oh, I mean, was I, that even legal in America up. back then? I don't know. I didn't look him up, so I'm assuming he's white. Okay. Well, and I mean, a woman being married five times, and especially in this last one, not being legally married right. and quote unquote living in sin or whatever was probably not looked upon favorably. Right. So later that same year, Josephine agreed to perform in, at New York's New York's Carnegie Hall, which is a huge honor. Wow. Um, and due to previous experiences, she was nervous about how the audience and critics would receive her. I mean, valid. Everyone here fucking hates her. Right. For dumb um, reasons. This time, however, cultural and racial growth was evident. Josephine received a standing ovation before the concert even began. 
and there, she received an enthusiastic welcome that was so touching that she wept on stage. Oh my god! Like she had she had such a rough upbringing here. She left and finally found the acceptance and success that she wanted and right. that she deserved. She comes back and established success and everyone just shits on her. Right. So she goes back, continues to do her thing. Comes back to try to like change it. And finally, accepted. she's accepted yeah. by her. I mean, it's like being accepted by your family. Right. You know, and that's one of the reasons I hate that. I hate that argument. Well, if you don't like it, leave. No, to really love your country is to acknowledge that it can do better and to work to make it better. Right. And that's what she did. And I love that she finally got that acceptance. I'm I'm going to cry. This right. is beautiful. So um, that was 1973. On April 1975, Josephine premiered at the Babino Theater in Paris. Celebrities such as Princess Grace of Monaco, wow, Sophia Loren, uh, uh, were in attendance to see the now 68-year-old Josephine perform a medley of routines from her 50-year career. I was just going to ask you how old she is because she was born in the early 1900s and we're already in 1970. Yep. God, the shit she has seen. Right. The reviews were among her best ever. Days later, however, Josephine slipped into a coma and she died from a cerebral hemorrhage at 5 a.m. on April 12th. Oh, no. 68 years old. Um, More than 20,000 people crowded the streets of Paris to watch the funeral procession on its way to the Church of Madeleine. Um, The French government honored her with a 21-gun salute making Josephine Baker the first American woman buried in France with military honors. Wow. I mean, yeah, she helped fight the Nazis. Yep. And her gravesite is in Cimetière de Monaco in Monaco. And she has continued to intrigue and inspire people throughout the world. There have been numerous documentaries about her. Um, One of them was uh, in 1991. HBO released the Josephine Baker story. The film garnered five Emmy Awards and won three Golden Globes, or won one of the three Golden Globes it was nominated for. Is it on Netflix? I have no idea. Is it on Hulu? Right. I want to watch it. But there have been several books written about her life, and like people are, you know, still really interested in her. I mean, obviously, she was a very impressive lady. Like, she made the stage her own. She was the first African-American in film. I mean, they were silent films at the time, but still, like... Yeah. So she was huge. That's that's her life. That's incredible. I love that she wasn't just an entertainer, but she fought for the country that accepted her in World War II, yep. and then she fought to make her birth country better. Yep. And that that was an uplifting story. You know, and she brought she, it back around. She, you know, in... She adopted children from different nationalities that probably at the time may not have been adopted. Right. You know, and brought them into this loving home to show people that it doesn't matter what color you are. We can all live together. I can only imagine that was a very personal thing for her, especially since it was likely that her father was white and wasn't taking responsibility for being the sperm donor. Part of the part of the stuff I cliff noted out, there was a low point, but it wasn't super important. I don't know what I don't know what it's doing. Um, Was that in the 60s, she did stop performing for a little while, like to spend more time at home. Right. Um, But then she didn't, she wasn't like making enough income 
because she, obviously she had a mansion, like, or at least 12 children. I mean, yeah, um, children so she, are expensive. she eventually lost the home, and then she went back to performing. Okay. But she loved it. Yeah. And she did well. That's a really beautiful story. I'm, I'm glad it kind of had the upswing there, and I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first woman we've covered where we know where she's buried and her grave is still intact. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than the one that isn't dead Because well, she doesn't have a grave. I'm, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I love, if you go to our blog and read about um, episode two... Kelly Kelly mainly handles our blog, and I love her for that, but she includes, like, funny notes like that, like, I'm not dead yet in Monty Python voice, and it's beautiful. That's just all it makes me think of. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Valentina Tereshkova, she's going to live for another- it. She's going to live for another hundred years, I'm saying it, I'm putting it out into existence, but hopefully, you know, we would know where she- would yep. be interred. But yeah, of of the women that we've covered that are no longer with us, yes, I think this is our first that we actually know where she's buried. I mean, I guess they eventually found Hatshepsut's body. Okay, th- but that's it didn't, true. in my notes it never said where it was recovered from. Well, in Artemisia, we know where she was buried. Yeah, but then her tomb got bombed the fuck up. So yeah, so that was fun. I'm sure she's dust. God, sure. that's that's depressing. And I mean, here's the thing. World War II was a god-awful time in so many respects. But when I hear about uh, some of the intellectual and personal losses like that, I'm like, fucking A, come on. Like, we lost the only Spinosaurus fossils we have in World War II because the museum that was That would bombed. be what you care about. Okay, that's not the only thing I care about. But whenever I see a documentary about Spinosaurus, and I'm kind of a dino nerd, if my shirt didn't Dino-nerd. indicate that... <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, God, fuck you guys. You're just awful in every single respect, and I hate Nazis, and they are all (laughs) terrible people. We're taking a very controversial stance and saying Nazis are bastards, all right? Yes. We're being very political and controversial on this podcast. Nazis suck. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm like very touched by your story, but I'm also really angry. (laughs) Yeah, right. Hey, at least America came around and was like, "Okay, yeah, you're good. At, you're good at what you do." Yeah, no, and that 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 was kind of a a very beautiful story that she was finally accepted in her birth country. Yeah, and by one her of, family. One of my favorite quotes from her, and maybe this will be an Instagram post one day, is to realize realize our dreams, we must decide to wake up. Oh, I love, and that. I really like that. Yeah, that's beautiful. But I also like part of what I find uplifting about her story too is that yes, she had five husbands i guess the last one was a pseudo husband but they were kind of all on her terms like like they said like she was very forward in her thing that if she was like no this relationship is no longer what i need or want i'm i'm done with it which is really powerful because i feel like we're socialized to you find a dude and you stick with him because you need a guy in your life right that, that, i mean that's the end goal to find a man and get married and have kids right and she was always in control Yep. And as women, that's not something I always feel. I don't know about you. I'm sure you feel out of control a lot. Sometimes, yeah. Well, the so other thing good is, for her. is she not only did she do that, but she did that while in the public eye. Exactly. She's under a ton of pressure. This right? isn't and just she's just like, no, nah, like, I'm sorry. I don't want to be with this guy anymore, so I'm not going to be with this guy anymore. Well, and with all the stigma surrounding divorce... And how and how hard it's been in the past to get divorced. Right. Good for her for acknowledging, hey, this yeah, relationship none isn't of them, good like, anymore. None of them were divorced by death or, you know, none of them were ended by death. Right. 
Like they, it was all divorce. Good for her. Yeah, I love that. She's very strong. I that's, I like started reading her story and I was like, yep, this is this is happening. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. All right. Well, we are uh, we're wrapping up here. We ended on a high note, but I like the theme that we're doing with saying something we're thankful for. Kelly hates it because I make her tell me <laughs> No, I'm like, oh, God, I have to think for. of something. I can get started. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to say I'm thankful for two things. One, I'm thankful to my mother who has been uh, flooding my inbox with emails of badass gals that I can Aww. cover. And um, I, I still need to teach my parents how to use uh, Spotify or iTunes or something so that they can listen. But I'm – I – I'm very touched that she's sending me women to cover. So Artemisia was the last woman I picked on my own. Everyone else from here on out is probably going to be women my mother picked. <laughs> um, and two, I'm really thankful I didn't punch my dad in the face the other day. Okay, I feel like there's I, a story behind this. There is a story. I don't think I told you. I was at uh, the pharmacy the other day, and I'm standing up at the counter, and... I'm like, oh, hey, my name's so-and-so. I'm picking up this prescription. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this figure Oh, like right behind you? Right behind me. And you, if you've ever been to a pharmacy, there's like a five-foot gap between the line and the counter. So no one should be up in your business. And this man whispers in my ear, do you think you could hurry it up there, young lady? And I turn around and I'm like... Give me a reason, fucker. I will end you. And it's my fucking dad. It's like that one time I had Justin honk at you in the car and you were about to turn around to be like, fuck you, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Kelly drives by my house all the time. And I was was walking up the sidewalk to go to my house and the car and her car honked at me. And I was like, don't you fucking even. And I glare at the car and I see Kelly in the window (laughs) waving. And I was like, oh, okay. I went from like bitchy to great and two seconds that was great so i turn around it's my dad i was like you scared the hell out of me and there's this older gal at the uh counter next to me and she's watching like what the fuck is going on so i made a point to be like good to see you dad right because i'm sure she was like why are you all up in that girl's business exactly the pharmacy where we're not supposed to be like up in anyone's business right so um i mean i chatted with him after and we were joking about it and i was like dad i I made a joke i was like dad that was my one chance to really give it to you and i didn't take it but that's how much i love you (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i'm i'm thankful to my mother who's endlessly supportive and my dad who still loves to keep me on my toes and give me shit even sneaking up on me in public (laughs) so um i i'll i'll do two since you started off with two one i want to i'm very thankful for my co-host emily um she does all of our editing and it took her a while and she was frustrated getting our audio to work today but she got it working because she's incredibly smart women and so i'm incredibly grateful that she wanted to do this podcast with me and I th- I'm having fun, so I hope she enjoys it as well. You're going to make me whine cry. Oh, oh I know. My I'm, God. Like I'm getting too. very emotional. Um, <laughs> and then I want to thank all, like, my coworkers and my sister and all the people that, like, when they hear I have a podcast are like, oh, what's it called? Where can I listen to it? And sorry, Lindsay, that I should have, like, pre-warned you not to listen to it around the children, but you figured it out within the first, like, minute. <laughs> yeah, this is not a child-friendly podcast. And actually, I was thinking about this. 
if this really takes off and you want to share it with your children, maybe we'll do like mini episodes that are kids friendly where we tell kids yeah. friendly stories about cool women. So you can share them with the with the kids in your life. Yeah, we would love to do that. That would totally be a thing. But yeah, I was texting my sister and she's like, oh, how can I listen to it? And I told her I like linked her to Spotify. And then like five minutes later, I get a text. I'll have to listen to this later when the kids aren't around. And I was like, yeah, they don't know. Sorry. What I'm pretty sure, I think we have an explicit tag on, but, you know, I'm sure she just wanted to listen to it because to support me, so. Oh, well, thank you, Lindsay. You're very sweet. Yeah. And to everyone else that has more, you know, more than supported us in this venture, thank you. We love you guys. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, please hit us up on Facebook, Whining About History. Holy shit. I should know the name of our podcast. (laughs) Hit us up on Instagram, W-A-H-Pod, or you can search us at Whining About Herstory. Uh, we also have our main blog website, which is just whiningaboutherstory.com. And then you can hit us up on email if you want. Send us your gals. Send us people in your own life. Send us just random stories or love or anything. And that's uh, whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. You know what? It's best to email us now before we really take off. So, because right now we can read every single email you send us yeah. and we will send personalized responses and send you love and support. So, get that on that. That might not happen in the future. <laughs> get on that. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We love you guys and please have an empowered day. Yes. Bye. Bye.